And a brand is really a product of multiple impressions and you reinforce it through each step of the way how you operate. And so it can be eroded very easily if you give them a bad experience. Welcome closers. Today we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season three on profit. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage a hundred units or a thousand, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Reach Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I am talking with Lucas Krauss, the CEO of Real Property Management. RPM is now the largest property management franchise in North America with more than 270 offices in 46 states that manages assets worth more than $13 billion. That's billion with a B. And today we're going to discuss what it takes to run a successful franchise and what trends RPM plans on leveraging in the near future in order to maintain their competitive advantage. Lucas, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So Lucas, I want to get right into it. I want to start here. What are the rules that are different? What's the playbook per se of running a franchise? And how is that different than an organization that's just running a bunch of corporate owned satellite offices? What are some of the fundamental differences? Yeah, franchise relationships are a little different in the sense of it's a partnership. They're each are independently owned and operated. And really the whole model behind franchising is along the lines of leveraging other people's capital to grow and expand. You develop your systems and processes and expand using those individuals who are entrepreneurs and want to jump into their own businesses. Uh, As a franchisor, we help get them ramped up. So it's different in the sense of we go through training, support, uh, help them with with not only sales tools, but also operationally on how you manage these businesses day to day. A lot of times it's people who don't come from the real estate space. Quite often they're individuals who may be looking for a business opportunity. We almost call them uh, expats from corporate America, and they're just looking to start their own thing. And a lot of people have been gravitating to the property management space given the attractiveness of it. You have reoccurring revenue, healthy margins, and a growing segment as more of our nation becomes renters. And so kind of the key fundamental differences is there's oversight from the franchisor and provides additional support than say an independently owned and operated who they don't have any accountability or extra supervision when it comes to monitoring trust accounts, making sure you're complying with fair housing and those types of things. Got it. So for the folks that end up deciding to go the franchise route, what do you think is the key determining factor as opposed to doing it on their own? What is the feedback that you get? Is it more the back office service to support? Is it more the branding? What do you think tends to be the linchpin decision for folks that go that route? I think it demystifies the space. Uh, Really our whole model and the model of any franchise concept, regardless of real estate, property management to food, it's about accelerating your ramp rate, eliminating some of those mistakes you make with your wallet because anyone who's been around property management knows you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And so can you leverage the experience and wisdom of not only the franchise support, but the 300 other franchisees that we have to help them get to a good place and avoid those costly mistakes. On top of that, 
that. It really is having a team behind you uh, that will have experts in you know the marketing side, the operational side, the public relations to guide you through that journey. And so that's kind of the key, I think, yeah, upside to joining a franchise organization. When you're on your own, obviously, you know, you're on your own a little bit, and there's greater upside potential because you don't right. have to pay what is a royalty, but it's kind of that risk reward equation. So most people who go into it and say they want a franchise, they they're going to have a higher likelihood of success, but they know in exchange for paying a royalty. Those individuals who are going to do it on their own, higher risk reward equation and not maybe have to pay that royalty off the top line. Okay. That's a really fair explanation. I love that. So everybody that's listening to this is more or less familiar with the franchise concept. Let's go a little bit deeper and talk about what it's like actually running a franchise. What's interesting about your role is that you're acting in a CEO capacity, actually being able to function as a CEO, whereas for a 10-person, 20-person organization, that organization needs a CEO, needs a tenth of a CEO. And the reality is you're doing it for 10% of your time and the rest you're doing sales calls, managing people, whatever it may be. So what is the day-to-day function in acting in that CEO capacity look like for you? Well, I appreciate you giving me credit that I fully operate as a CEO. I <laughs> could tell you, uh, transitioning in, I coach a lot of leaders on how to get, you know, remove your day-to-day responsibilities. And I can tell you that was the number one mistake I made of just letting go of some of those things I had as the COO before transitioning into the CEO. The nice part about it, like you said, is to focus on more long-term vision of where we're going as an entity, doing great things like this and getting the word out about our brand and spreading, you know, uh, kind of the gospel of property management in general. <laughs> Because our industry needs to grow and mature. And it's great to see so many groups like yourself, NARP, um, pushing things forward because we need to grow as a space. And so I get excited about doing that and kind of spreading the word of property management. But it really is important. We're in a dynamic time. And so it is a lot more fun to step back and look, where do we need to be in three, five years from now, rather than chasing my tail and putting out the fire that has to happen in the next minute. And it's, of course, you got to stay grounded. Uh, One of the key things I do like to be involved and have that situational awareness so that I'm well dialed into what's going on at the ground level, because very quickly you can get, you know, almost a loop and disconnected from what is really happening in the day-to-day business. And that doesn't make you a strong leader. So you do need to strike that healthy balance of, of staying strategic, thinking about the business at a high level, but also engaging and being a part of the department meetings and even getting out and talking with our franchisees and their team often so you know what's going on because you make much better decisions when you're well-informed. What are some of the distinctives of how the corporate organization is run from a management structure perspective? And have you seen shifts in that from when you first joined the organization? Yes, it's a natural evolution. When I came on a little over six and a half years ago, it was a small organization. We had about 120 locations and it was kind of, we were a victim of our own success. We were growing so fast and throwing resources at it without much rhyme or reason, just plugging holes. And uh, as I was actually consulting and advising before jumping on, we stepped back and really retooled our whole fundamental operation, our backbone. And that meant getting department heads with seasoned experience, not only in property management, but in other verticals and seeing where, okay, we need to have people with this kind of property management experience. No, we can leverage people with agency experience and marketing and just balancing that out. And so it's been fun as we've been able to grow now, actually have over 320 locations in North America. Um. And it's been able to 
have department heads and create you know people who are looking at the business at a higher level and be more proactive rather than reactionary. And when you're kind of growing and you don't have those the right talent or bench, you could be chasing your tail and you're in firefighter mode, which can be very damaging because you're just kind of tackling whatever's in front of you rather than building something sustainable and that can grow and expand in the future. Sure. So let's talk about some of the actual challenges of being in your position and leading franchisees that have that autonomy, that entrepreneurial spirit, as you described. Franchisee buy-in, no doubt, is a recurring, ongoing issue. Folks that they see the idea, the concept, they're excited, but for whatever reason, in many cases, we can kind of get in our own way when it Mm -hmm. comes to staying on track and staying on the game plan. What kind of challenges do you face in terms of being able to get each franchisee to receive the full benefit that RPM can offer once they've once they've made that commitment and come on board. The key is actually understanding what their objectives are and what they want to accomplish. In franchising, it's all about persuasion. You can't you can dictate things within your franchise agreement, but you can't require. And as you know, I mean you've been through training and leading individuals. You have to inspire, influence individuals, but they have to have that desire. They want to continue to grow. And so when we understand what their objectives are, then we can align the support. We have our business coaches who work with them regularly towards their plan. And so one of the biggest things we do is an annual planning exercise. It looks at all aspects of the business, whether it be operations, marketing, even really, you know, how they monetize accounts and to really build that up. And so when we support them, it's tailored to those objectives. We may have an individual who's at 300 units and they're very happy to be there. Mm -hmm. There's someone else who might be at 700 going, I need to grow even further. Or, you know what? I look at it. I have 700 properties, but I'm not making much money. Let's get into the core of my operations. And so it's, it's kind of the joke we'll use of, you know, someone runs into the hospital and they have a nail in their head, but they're saying their ankle hurts. You really want to take the nail out and help them, but they're not going to listen to you unless you address the ankle. And so it is a, it's, it's managing personalities and you tapped into this entrepreneur element. Everyone has different objectives on what they want to accomplish, but also strengths and weaknesses. And you have to tailor to that. And so our whole kind of philosophy on supporting franchisees has been around kind of the accordion approach, spreading, expanding, and tailoring to their specific needs and wants uh, versus trying to dictate something because really you're going to meet unnecessary resistance. And so it is tapping into truly what they want to accomplish, but also what to, what you know what strength and even what financial wherewithal they have. Because you can get very aggressive on the marketing side. Mm-hmm. If they don't have the funds, you're, you're setting them up to fail. And so maybe you go to more of a grassroots effort based off those kind of limited resources. So I want to talk about the intersection of the custom tailoring that you just brought up, while also recognizing that there is supposed to be benefit that comes from scale. I'm thinking about benchmarking. There's supposed to be insights that the franchisor should have have that two, a couple of guys at the bar at an ARPM event might not have because the reality is that the level of transparency and organization isn't quite there. So how are you able to both provide some benefits on the level of those benchmarking insights while also realizing that you cannot compare a thousand unit company and, where, and their metrics to a hundred unit company? How do you kind of balance that? Uh, that's a great question. It's a fine line to balance. Uh, we start out in the early stages of going, doing aptitude testing and personality profiles and targeting out what their financial reserves when someone jumps into the business. And so we start day one working with them on what their plan is and what their targets are for their growth. So we will also augment their training because they go through a six-week onboarding process and then a week in, in Salt 
Lake City for onboarding training, Mm -hmm. but we will augment their training with different things based off their strengths and weaknesses. Say they're not overly strong on selling. We will add extra sales courses to help them through that process. And so we'll kind of pick and choose different platforms to put in front of them like that. As they graduate and get rolling, the same thing. They have a support resource that's meeting with them weekly, and we'll change and tailor the support plan based off of where they're at. And so that's kind of where we change is more of the training and how we support. But what we do is normalization is we actually provide scorecards, and they have benchmarks based off the size of the offices. Mm. They get those monthly. And what we'll do is dig into all their financials, the expense side, the revenue side. Then we also look at the operational metrics and how, you know, how effectively they're doing the move in process or move out process, whatever it is. And so they get benchmarks, but we compare those based off of like-sized offices. Nice. And it's getting more refined as we get larger. 320, it's still, you know, getting to statistically significant sample sizes is challenging because you have, okay, how many offices between 800 and 1,000 and how many between 1,500 up? They can be small samples. And so as we grow and expand, that that data set gets tighter and tighter. And so it is a delicate balancing act as we refine those things. Yeah, it makes sense. But I love that you're actually taking the approach and trying to have apples to apples comparisons, even within the network. You mentioned previously that one of the capacities that you act in is spreading the gospel of property management. We're all hoping for category expansion. Some of that will happen naturally through the market. Some of that is individual brands actually being able to create more category awareness. How do you think about the role and the opportunity or threat that market regulation represents? We look at markets like Australia, where there's an inversion in terms of self versus professional property management. How do you think about the opportunity or threat of regulation in the U.S.? I think regulation will be a positive thing. Uh, As you know, the barriers to entry in our space are quite low. Uh, We're very active in the education side. We help develop NARPM's 101 certification program. We believe in giving education back because when you get your real estate license in most states, you know, it's 120 hours, 150 hours. You maybe get two, three hours of training on property management. Mm -hmm. So it's about formalizing what kind of training is out there. And so that's first and foremost. But as I look at regulation, I think it's important because we do need to raise the standards. We have some amazing property managers out there within systems, independence, but they're being pulled down by those individuals who may be well-intended, but not well-heeled. And that mm-hmm. can be a problem to us. So I see a great benefit there. And I think it's important as we see more competitors coming in, that it helps to raise the competitive set because it will also hopefully you know, steel sharpen steel that we all can get better and have a, a stronger space with more opportunity. So this whole idea of the lemons market theory, which for those listeners that haven't heard of it, is basically the notion that in a situation where a consumer cannot assess quality, they default to paying somewhere between what the price would be for a high-priced item and a low-priced item, which basically is just an average of the two. The problem is that if you're selling high-priced goods, that doesn't work economically. So it creates an opportunity for to push out higher performing vendors and to enable lower performing vendors. Right now, when your average investor, when your average accidental landlord wants to hire a property manager, what are the metrics that they should go to? Yeah, there are things like Yelp reviews, but a lot of it is gut feel and doing due diligence and research. There is no There certainly is no governmental agency that is giving star ratings or anything like that. In my mind, brand is a non-governmental factor, non-regulatory factor that ultimately can pierce through a lot of that noise. 
RPM has obviously invested in brand. What's the thought about the kind of customer consumer facing brand messaging that you guys invest in right now? And who are you targeting? Well, obviously, it's as you've seen a seismic shift from accidental landlords to intentional investors. And so mm-hmm. we've been very focused around understanding really what we're in the business at. It's wealth creation. That's our job when it's all mm. said and done. Well said, well said. And it's about positioning ourselves in that way. And a brand is really a product of multiple impressions and you reinforce it through each step of the way how you operate. And so it can be eroded very easily if you give them a bad experience, not only the Yelp review, but it just, it, it taints and erodes that brand equity. And so the key for us is consistency on the operational side and delivering that superior experience time and time again and calibrating our performance so that brand can have meaning. As you know, this space is so fragmented today. Mm-hmm. It's again, you know, you know, managing, we manage a little north of 50,000 assets. It's, it's still not even a fraction of a percentage point of our space. And so it's very important that each touch point, we reinforce that so that that brand actually means something. And so you have not only when you have over 50,000, you have not only homeowners, but you also have the residents and the tenants on that side Mm -hmm. that you need to balance. And so that becomes challenging because the brand can mean two different things because you have your responsibility to the homeowner, but you also have responsibility to the resident side. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit about the fragility of the brand, particularly in a franchise scenario. The brand ultimately can only weather so many storms. How are you guys able to kind of manage that brand without fully being in control of it? What does that, that dance or that balance look like? Yeah, it's a difficult balance. I'd say it's one of those where we've been looking at more metrics on the operational side and a big push we've had to digitize everything we do behind Mm -hmm. the scenes so that we can provide that benchmark data, but also have visibility in where there might be gaps or underperformance, not only at an office level, but it gives an owner operator the ability to see where maybe one of their departments or an individual employee is not carrying their weight. And so then you can start to calibrate by providing those benchmarks. And so that's really the big picture where we want to take it is be able to have standard benchmarks across each category, each position at each size of the life cycle of the business so that we can ensure that it's a consistent feedback loop for not only our offices, but us managing it. And that can be difficult because, you know, as franchisees, they're independently owned and operated. So we want to be involved, but at the same time, you can't be overly involved because they're not your employees. Sure. And so it is delicate with joint employer on some of the restraints we have as a franchisor. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's go back to talking about some of the operational efficiencies. Again, this topic of scale keeps coming up. In you alls situation, there's presumably a lot of data that you're sitting on. There's a lot of insight, accumulated insight, or at least potential insight that is really what data represents. Oftentimes, it's not unlocked. We hear words like AI or big data being thrown around, but we're still on the front side of really unlocking that potential. What opportunity do you see for the franchise in that regard and for the market more broadly as we move from these old crusty silos to hopefully having more free-flowing operational data moving around? I think the customer ultimately benefits if we can provide data, not only to demonstrate how responsive we are, how timely fashion we do things. So whether it's how quick you can place a tenant, how quickly you respond to maintenance Mm -hmm. work orders, you can demonstrate that tangibly to the customer. I think Mm -hmm. that's where the greatest benefit is. As an organization trying to aggregate that data, we're working through how you normalize the collection because it's great to have all these data collection points. However, if it's not normalized, 
the data is almost useless. And so it's it's actually a big initiative. We started almost four and a half years ago as we've been refining our data kind of collection points so that we can start to feed back to the customers data on how our offices perform and use that as a tangible differentiator as we move forward. Because as you mentioned today, it's kind of just this abstract concept where they say, yeah, you, we provide great service. Mm-hmm. My Yelp reviews are okay. Well, how do you quantify it? It needs to be measurable. And that's one of the things we've been working on quite a bit over the last few years. As we get better with it, you're going to see more of that in the next couple of years, much more public uh, as that data set gets more refined. What kind of optimism do you have around the situation with vendors in this industry? You got vendors like Buildium, Atfolio, Rent Manager, Propertyware, all kind of somewhere in between a policy of a, a truly open ecosystem versus a an fairly closed off ecosystem. Do you think that there's going to be ongoing pressure on vendors to embrace a more open ecosystem? Do you think that this industry is any more forward or behind any other industries that you've worked with in that specific regard? I think it's going to be more of a pull strategy. And so if they're going to, folks are going to be open up, it's because their customer ultimately demands it. It's the property manager, you, me, the all, everyone in our space. I think that'll dictate it. As if I'm sitting in that seat of running Buildium, property where Yardy, Appfolio, whatever it is, uh, obviously you want to control it. You want to preserve. There's there's issues as you open up with more things touching and pinging your system. You as a obviously a, a data guy and a tech guy would know that quite well. Yep. I think what's interesting is we start to see these different solutions, you know, coming up in little niche products. And so right now it's kind of challenging because you go, I can see value in one of these products. But how many different platforms do I need my team to have mm-hmm. at the local level? If they're punching in and out of four different disparate systems that don't talk to each other, that's painful. And so I do think you're, you hit it on the head that we're in the very early stages of this. I think it's going to be kind of cream will rise to the top. If there's great value add systems there, either they're going to get acquired or they're going to be rolled in. And it's going to be driven by the customer's demand pulling those things through. Uh, It's very interesting because one of the other benefits of what those property management software platforms have, they see this as a data play. I mean, they're collecting that data and that information. That's probably one of the most valuable assets they have. And so it's about how do I retain this customer? And so folks are making some significant investments in whether they're building, buying, or implementing other platforms because I want to retain you. One of the things it's painful to make a switch from a platform to a you know a different platform, but the key is really retaining that customer because you have this unpredictable annuity, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden you have this data that you can also monetize after the fact. So it is very intriguing, and I get a lot of calls from different investment groups who are kind of circling around the space, and I can tell you there's a lot of private equity looking at this and evaluating it. Ah, great. So let's pivot right off of that. So the opportunity that is associated with running a residential property management business, there's a bunch of adjacent businesses that are around that. you got the brokerage side, maintenance, title escrow. You could take it in a bunch of different directions. But the reality is that if you're enterprising, I'm sure you have plenty of folks within the RPM system that are that own more than one business. And this is just one of the investment classes that they've jumped into. What do you view as being some of the relevant ancillary business opportunities that you're really well positioned into if you have a successful property management business? So let's start with what we encourage. We actually encourage folks to be laser focused because we still believe this is such an untapped space. As you mentioned, there are a lot of ancillary opportunities and we almost say shiny object syndrome. <laughs> Just within property management alone, think Fair about enough. 
you can get into single family. You can start to get into common interest communities, HOAs, which are a whole different animal to multifamily. And you get this proliferation of focus. You could almost be, you know, ineffective at all of them. And so we do kind of preach that they stay disciplined on their core business. As they get to a level of maturity, then we encourage maybe branching out and participating in some of those other activities, especially as they get more established, seasoned, they understand the the differences. Someone gets approached with by a common interest community management, they get excited, they look at big dollars, but those things are different and they're very difficult to manage and they can be very lucrative, but you need to know how to understand how you price that position it and support it, or you may lose your shirt on it. So that's kind of the, some of the other areas where you can get involved in the key space. But as you mentioned, just being in the real estate you know, space and you're talking with these investors and working with them, the transactional side on the sales is a great place. The lending side, there is a lot of places you can get involved. The maintenance side is a big piece. And even some of the back end, you know, services, whether it be snow removal, clean, you know, kind of the made type services. There is so many different ways you can monetize kind of ancillary parts of this business. But we you can see why we say stick to your core because there's probably two dozen other things you could do, which would be great. But a lot of people aren't overly effective once they start getting you know divided attention. Sure. Get traction, get inertia, make thing A work before you jump to B and C. I get that. So on that point, what's your basic view of the cycles of infrastructure investment and then the yield that comes from that? Some people talk about maybe 100 units being one first barrier to cross and then 400 and then 1,000. And at each stage, you're you're staffing up, you're building more infrastructure, and then you're hopefully stopping and getting some benefit from that. What do you think of as the key thresholds or milestones in that growth expansion process? I'll give you some ranges. I think one thing that's important that gets often neglected is that revenue per unit. They're very, they're folks who are very effective in monetizing it, and that can accelerate that life cycle when you staff up and how you support it and gives you more margin for error. I do think you have that kind of the infancy of the business, which might be that 70 to maybe 110, 120. Yeah, some people might be able to do it with kind of a, a part-time resource supporting them or one full-time. As you get through that phase, you start to now maybe have to have someone who complements you or another key resource. Then you get into maybe that 200, 250 range where you start to get a few different uh, resources, but they're still wearing lots of hats. And so that truly isn't this departmental approach. Again, as you get more mature and if it's an easy, let's just say it's a, a, a portfolio that's not well, you know, diverse in the sense of it's similar properties, very close, kind of same kind of management, you can get to a more departmentalized and maybe that three to 500 range. And it gets, starts to get more mature typically over that five to 700. That next leap I see is anywhere between that 800 and 1200 range. And that's the big leap where a lot of folks struggle because now it's a mature business. You have your department heads, but you have this whole other layer of management, these vice presidents, and those are big ticket items. Right. So someone who's making great money at that size looks at it and goes, ah, is it really worth the risk reward equation to spend $100,000, $200,000 on these VP type levels to help my business go to that next level? Uh, that's a tough decision. And I think you see a lot of people, I think, say tapering off because they just run the equation and go, I'm making a great living because these are very lucrative businesses if you monetize them correctly. And so that's, I think, the crux of that next position. But from there, you know, 2000 up, it's, it's a whole other animal. It becomes a major business. You know, it almost seems like the further you scale, the more committed you have to be in order to keep going. And the worst idea 
it becomes to tr- attempt to scale unless you're really sold out on that process to do it half-hearted, which, you know, you could say that about anything in the business, whether that means getting into multifamily or growth for the, just for the sake of growth. But in general, we definitely see some dipping points where past a thousand units, if there's not a lot of scrutiny being applied to the numbers, if there is no one acting in a CFO function on a part-time, full-time basis, it really doesn't matter. We're definitely seeing some struggle there. There's a lot of theses and all, a lot of beliefs about the benefits that will come from scale. But from what I'm seeing, some of that is still untested. What do the larger franchises in the, in the RPM network look like? I mean, in that above a thousand, do you have quite a few franchises that are in that category? Yeah, but you nailed it. We have the same thing with that somewhat, I hate to say complacency because there's a negative connotation, but there is a comfort and the risk reward equation just doesn't seem as attractive because again, the business is kicking off great kind of returns. There's another big commitment. I think you captured it quite well. The commitment is, is adding that headcount, maybe expanding your office space, tying into a bigger lease or even buying the building, right? And leasing it back to yourself. And so I think people get to that size. They start to look at that commitment and go, I'm, I'm doing well. This can be a a difficult business. As we know, it can be very litigious. And so they go, okay, maybe I should diversify my interests and go somewhere else and not put all my eggs in this basket. I have this great resource and I've optimized it to this level. And so we do see those individuals, I think, get to that size. And, you know, we have people at that over the thousand mark who may have 12 employees up to 25. And it just depends on how they're structured. Again, with the size of their portfolio, what's the mix? Are they getting into common interest communities? Are they getting into multifamily? Those factors can, I say, complicate, but add overhead as you, uh, you know, maybe get into different verticals within property management. What is your advice on growth for younger operators? One of the recurring patterns that we see is that there's a really hard transition going from referral-based growth to leveraging paid advertising. In many ways, these things are not particularly dissimilar. And the skill set that you would just intuit from knowing your craft, being in the marketplace, connecting with people, doesn't necessarily translate well at all to running an SEO campaign, figuring out pay-per-click, et cetera. What's your advice for early operators that are trying to graduate beyond just the referral uh, growth? Uh, we preach diverse lead sources so that you're, you know, you're spending on your web. What are you doing from a referral? What are you leveraging your own personal network? Cultivating leads is from as many avenues as possible. We believe that way it somewhat insulates you from and having that diversity and lead source so that you're not just relying on one piece. The referral lead source is one I've seen quite often. People get excited about when it starts to pay dividends and then they stop. Because they forgot it, to, it almost was a 90-day ramp up of knocking on doors, making those introductions that that's now paying dividends 90 days down the road. And so now that's paying dividends, I can step back or I'm busy and I'm starting to work and I have to lease these homes out. The key there is also to have the dedicated resource to business development. I think all too often, property managers make the mistake of trying to wear too many hats on the, with you know, having the business developer get involved in leasing and do these things. And without having that discipline, guess right. what? Right. I'll take this call. And then that lead does, you know, doesn't get picked up. And as you know, as well as I do, if that phone doesn't get answered, guess what? It goes to the next and they, they mm-hmm. dial down and you spend a lot of money on that lead and you, or, you know, whether it be hard dollars or sweat equity, knocking on doors, answer the phone and make sure your whole team com- is committed to that. Have redundancy in place so that you're cu- picking that up. And that's the key. 
Yeah. I mean, if you've earned the lead, close it. If you've earned the client, keep them, retain them. We see a trend in general with I would say small businesses across the board. I don't want to pick on property management, but I would say that we tend to see sales and marketing as effectively non-operationalized, meaning the widget, the, the management, the rent collection, that's that's the, the gooder service in the area of focus. But sales and marketing tends to really be non-operationalized and in many ways be a second or a third class citizen. What's your advice on the timing of when to actually fully embrace that, which ultimately if there's not a butt in a chair and it's a part-time role, in my mind, that's a real bellwether of the overall level of commitment for that function within the business. It starts day one. It's a culture of growing and selling and making that a priority. As a small business owner, you dictate the culture of what your business is. Everyone else will take cues from you. If it's your business, that phone is a priority. You train, you teach on that, you cross-train, you reward, you put financial incentives. If, if you close a deal that everyone benefits so that everyone knows that's the priority. And so not only dedicating the resource, but following up with your actions. If they see you not answering the phone when you're on business development, guess what happens? You sent signals and reinforce yeah. that's okay. Great ideas. We've seen individuals, what they'll do, they'll ring a bell every time they close a deal and then they hand out $5 bills to every team member. <laughs> Again, just putting that in the minds of all your employees. If you have 10, 15 employees, if they know they're going to do that, guess what? They're going to be more proud and thinking through that same mindset of, oh, I want to get some extra money. I know people. All of us know people who may have investment properties. I want my accountant. I want everybody thinking in terms of how do I build this business, be vested in it. So to me, it starts with day one, setting the tone in that culture and reinforcing it every step of the way. If you do that, you're more likely to succeed on kind of keeping that growth engine and that trajectory going the right way. No, I love that. So that was really soft. That wasn't making it as, as black and white as I did. If you got, got to hire a BDM or you don't, your point was much more accessible. Regardless of what scale you're at, just make it really clear that you actually care and this is a priority. And this is what the sales side of the business, the brokerage side gets, right? The brokerage side, you don't kill, you don't eat. The blessing and cursing of our side of the business is recurring revenue. You used the, the word complacency earlier. There's some truth to it, but that which is, if not financially, but also emotionally and culturally incentivized is what gets paid attention to. But it's that service demands, right? And so then you end up, after you close the business, now I have to support that account. And so that's where often people get distracted and pulled away. Everyone knows they should answer the phone, but they haven't set the tone and discipline from day one that either they gave themselves dedicated resources, like you said, right? Day one, make sure you have a business development manager who's managing this. And then not asking them to do other things, or if the business development manager is out, that the rest of the team's cross-trained to be able to step up and at least take those calls. And I think that's the key is showing that discipline and putting those processes in place so the phone gets answered. Because you can't be there 24-7. If you have only one resource, they're going to get pulled away, even if you do the right things and, and keep them disciplined and focused on just business development. And so I think that's the challenge that we don't, that the broker side doesn't have, right? As much as you're doing some showings, but you're always there, you're accessible. It's not the same work. I mean, this is why this, I think this industry's kind of flown under the radar a little bit because it's work. And that's why <laughs> you know, a lot of realtors don't, don't want to do right. property management because right. it is. Mm -hmm. No, there's no, there's no doubt about that. How do you think about outsourcing? As you're mentioning the, the demands of just doing the day-to-day -day routine, a lot of folks are looking to outsourcing to fill in some of those gaps. What's your overall perspective on the opportunity or the appropriate leverage that outsourcing could represent when done well? 
I think outsourcing is a great vehicle to help folks lever up. You can turn your, you know, basically an expense into a variable expense, and that allows you mm-hmm. to scale. I think you need to know who you are and what you want your business to be. Uh, folks can get themselves in trouble with outsourcing too many elements, and it becomes a management of vendors versus management mm-hmm. of your business. And I think there's a just a healthy balance to strike, but it's about knowing yourself. I think a perfect way to look at it is the maintenance side of the business. You get large enough, you can take that in-house. But that introduces operational complexity. Those are more employees to manage. That can be a lot of work. A lot of times we'll have individuals who just based off their skill set will recommend outsource all of it. Make it easier. Just have a maintenance coordinator that manages your vendors. That will work. And so to me, it's more about what the vertical is, you know, what the element is that you're outsourcing, how it fits into your overall plan. Because there's a lot of great solutions out there that, you know, you can leverage, for whether it be virtual assistants, to external vendors, to different software platforms, and they all have a place, but you have to tie into what your objectives are and what your strengths and weaknesses. Individuals who maybe have a great accounting finance background, they're not going to leverage an outside CPA firm or different group, accounting group. Sure. But if it's your weakness and you're, and you're scared of it and you, mm-hmm. you don't think you can manage it, outsource it, get the help, get the expert, have that accountability because guess what? You're not going to be able to manage it and oversee it the way you should. And so it is kind of figuring out you know, personally what are, you, what are you strong at and what are you weak at. Love it. So I want to kind of close here talking about the opportunity of where the industry is headed. We see outside capital coming into the industry. We've even seen some fully blown Silicon Valley software first and basically just incidentally property management second companies coming out here. There's some trends and there's some definitely some shifts that are kind of blowing. What do you think is going to be the same and what is going to be different about our industry five years from now? I think it's going to change dramatically. I think probably what we run the risk of is it's an attractive space with a lot of attention and there's going to be a lot of providers, the risk of commoditization. How do you distinguish yourself in a space? Just give you an idea alone. In 2017, there were over 34,000 new property management businesses started. Not all of them end up coming to fruition, but there was 34,000 businesses that designated their primary function as property management. Wow. That's a really interesting data point. Wow. And that trend's been growing. It's, it's, you know, it was in the kind of the mid-20s three years ago, and it's just been accelerating. So again, we have natural attrition in some of those, you know, fall out. But you see that acceleration and more, if you look at property management as a search term, that's doubled on a national level in the last three years. So we're seeing that attention in that space coming. So I look at it as a great thing, creating awareness and having, you know, more professionals in the space. But as that space gets more crowded, How do you stand out? How do you differentiate yourself? I think that's so important as we look at it because technology is going to come in. It's going to naturally disrupt it. And we're going to have to figure out where does it make sense? Because I think technology be a great thing and can be used in the right way. But right now it's so early. And I think people, especially as you, you said, there's a lot of firms popping up, Silicon Valley throwing dollars at it that aren't fully formed ideas, but they're like, I want to address this piece. And so again, we're in this early stages. Some of these things will shake out some of them won't. And so it'll be this evolution. Uh, but I really look at how do we avoid commoditization? Uh, because you know everyone today looks and feels very similar. And how do we really provide something that's different and value add? I'll, I'll kind of throw it back to what I told you before. I said, you know, as our whole kind of what we embody as a system is, we're in the wealth creation business. Now, how do we help them, mm-hmm. our clients, make more money? If we can do that and demonstrate that, to me, you can stand out. Love that. Great advice. Getting clear in your positioning, understanding 
just being realistic about this notion that there's a lot of other businesses that look like you and that's okay as long as you actually do the work to stand out. What I think, my belief is that a long-term business plan does not look like simply cost cutting and fee maxing. Those are tactically relevant things to do in the near term, but that cannot be a long-term business plan. The future of the business has to be bigger than that. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. If folks want to find out more about RPM as a franchise and what you're up to, what's the best place for them to go? Our website, realpropertymgt.com. All right. So guys, let's uh, keep eyes on what Lucas and RPM is up to. Definitely an interesting player in the space. And I appreciate you coming on the show and carving up some time for us. Hey, it's a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show. And the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.